I've been kind of watching you a little bit since June when you went up to the mic at the Loudoun County School Board and had some strong words to say about trends that you were seeing that reminded you of something you experienced back in China, the Cultural Revolution, in fact. I guess I want to kind of dig into this whole realm. This is our opportunity to kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive into what you saw and what you're seeing now and actually what's happened since and a little bit of your background. You're you're from communist China. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in communist China uh, and uh, I left China for America when I was 26. And when the Cultural Revolution started, I was a first grader, and I spent my entire school years in the uh, Cultural Revolution. And uh, after that, I was sent to the countryside to work in the fields to receive re-education from the peasants, like many, many uh, urban youth. So I always say I had a full experience of the Cultural Revolution. Well, and... It just is an interesting aside. So, and then I guess a couple of years after you uh, were sent into the countryside, so to speak, but the the whole policy actually changed, right? Yes. Yeah. Thank goodness. Uh, it's my third year, and Deng Xiaoping was in power, and he said, "Yeah, we we need to start it to send youth to uh, college by examination. Before it's not by examination; it's by good behavior, and." Uh, yeah, it's by uh, uh, chosen by the party leaders. So he said, now it's by your ability. Mm. So I was able to um, pass the examination mm. and went to college to study English. Why don't we start with a little bit about what the Cultural Revolution was, and then we'll we'll get into the the current day. But mm -hmm. like, what 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 was that? And then you can tell me what it was like to be there. Yeah, the Cultural Revolution is a. It's very important to understand why there was a Cultural Revolution, and I did not understand until much later. Um, so there were a lot of disastrous policies that Mao implemented before the Cultural Revolution, and one of them um, resulted in the uh, uh, famine of some 40 um, million people uh, starved to death. And uh, so there was some kind of a criticism inside the party and there's some questioning about his leadership. So he feel like uh, his absolute power was uh, in question. So that's the reason. That's the reason he started the Cultural Revolution to basically remove his political enemies and a political enemy up and down. And then the number one was the president of China, Liu Shaoqi, and it goes to the bottom of uh, our local government. They all need to be um, removed. And he wanted to put his own people mm. in every level. And that's um, the reason and uh, um, the means that he used to, uh, to get the mass involved. And then the first one was unleash the Red Guards. Mm. So those are the uh, indoctrinated youth uh, in colleges and universities. And it started uh, in Beijing and then quickly spread over. So the Red Guards uh, were mainly uh, school kids. So they, okay, since you said the mass involved, so like just yeah. like kind of the masses, yeah. right? Yeah. To, to basically employ them in his in his quest so and the red guards how were they indoctrinated um well <laughs> that start from day one so as soon as um, uh, the ccp took over power in 1949 one of the first thing they did is to get all the uh, school teachers um together because they were the, the teachers of the old china so they were giving intensive uh, communist uh, training mm. to learn about uh, Marxism, to learn about uh, the uh, communist ideology. And uh, they were not even giving weekend off. They have to be trained day and night until they pass examinations before they could go back to the classroom. Mm. So, so they were uh, there to uh, teach now the uh, Marxist and communist values and ideologies. So ever since then, the educational system is an indoctrination meal ever since then. But it was during the Cultural Revolution that we get to see the full display of what those indoctrinated kids were mm. 
able to do, were capable of. And so to that, the Cultural Revolution was a really stunning um, uh, experience for uh, for people who are in that um, a revolution and for people later to see. It was something that if I tell um, young people in China today, and most of them say, I just could not believe that happened. Well, so well, tell me a few memories of, of what you what you saw happen. I was uh, a first grader, so as six or seven, I had one semester of kind of normal education. Um, so, and then, to me, my memory is just overnight. Overnight, and then the school sto uh, class stopped, and I see the red, it's called a uh, big character posters everywhere. Mm. So those are just uh, uh, people write down um, whatever criticism, that's the uh, Chinese word for it, but it is really denunciation and attack of uh, um, teachers, of uh, school administrators, and of each other. And so anywhere there was a war place, uh, space, there's a big character posters. Mm. And uh, so I was just too little to really understand the content. But what I remember is the uh, chaos. And uh, so in the uh, classroom, and uh, uh, there is a, uh, the teacher wrote uh, a note in the blackboard said, uh, mm. uh, no school for three days. And that uh, uh, stayed there for three, uh, two years. No school for two years. Yeah, so um, uh, when I went back to uh, school, that I was in the fourth grade. So I missed the second and third grade. No school. Fascinating. So just, you know, you got a, you basically got a, what, a semester, did you say? One or, semester, or what, what yeah. semester, yeah, uh -huh. and then school went out. Yeah, just out. And uh, um, universities, I think, they um, stopped for like five years or longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so who and who were these red guards? Were they the the sort of the extra committed youth, or how how did they come about? The, everyone was a red guard. If you're in high school, and even the uh, in elementary school, we're just too little. But we're called the little red guards. Mm -hmm. But they were all um, organized by themselves because Mao openly support them, and uh, and they just chanted Mao's slogan: "Rebellion is justified." And, uh, and Mao said, revolution is not dinner party, and it is violent, so go ahead, do your revolution. So with Mao's uh, um, approval, mm. no one could stop them. So the first thing they did is uh, they dismantled the uh, law enforcement and the court system. So um, they just did whatever. They even make up their own um, uh, laws. So one of the things they, uh, they were told is to get rid of those people in authority. Mm. And who are the people in authority? The first are the teachers. So many teachers were struggled against, parade mm. around, and uh, many were beaten, some to death. Yes, and uh, so because it, uh, I was uh, in the elementary school, we were just like seven-year-old and up to, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, even that, eventually it gets violent. And, uh, um, but not, I, I don't think anyone killed in, by elementary school teachers, but people were killed by middle school kids. Yeah, there was no consequence. And because of that, um, um, they just made up, made up their own rule. I heard this not from me, but heard from an, uh, some other, uh, as another person who witnessed the beaten to death of a man who dared to withdraw 1,000 yuan from the bank because the Red Guard said that if you have that much money, you are oppressor, you are exploiter, so mm -hmm. you are counter-revolutionary. So they just did that. No consequence, even today. The, uh, their crimes were never prosecuted. Those people who died, died in vain, forgotten, except by their families. And so in these, you know, you're talking about this struggling. And so I guess these posters were also sort of encouraging people to, to join in these struggle sessions. What, yeah. Just explain what that is exactly. The struggle session was just total confusion to me because there's no school and we just went out and every day there was a struggle session of uh, uh, someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one day I was out with a, a friend of mine 
And so usually they a different. Some just just use truck to parade the people, and with the sign of the name crossed out. And so one day we were there, and we looked. We're stunned. That's my friend's father. And uh, so it's like a. I don't know who, and it's just so many people were struggled against, and uh, some were very violent. And I went to one struggle session of the uh, governor of Sichuan province, that's where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of far from, uh, 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 he was standing somewhere high, and then uh, so everyone could see him, and the red guards were reading out his uh, whatever criticism or denunciation. And uh, yeah, total total chaos. That's I mean, it's incredible to to hear about it from someone that that really experienced it. Of course, I've read a lot about yeah. about the Cultural Revolution, um, and then so we then. But but you did get older in the process. This lasted so ten years. Of, yes. Uh, yeah. And so, what about towards you know you were seeing things presumably a bit more clearly towards the you know when you were fifteen, sixteen, or it was just this mass chaos all the way through? I don't think I ever clearly saw anything. Mm -hmm. And so I remember that I, I was sent to the countryside. By then, we heard enough horror stories of uh, uh, youth working in the countryside and work uh, with the peasants. And uh, I did not really want to go, but I had to. So a lot of times, actually, I was blaming myself that I was just kind of weak that I just can't, uh, uh, that I need to be toughened up so that I can contribute meaningfully for the socialist cause. Mm. So a lot of times, it's not like I saw clearly that uh, uh, this was unjust. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sure. the power of indoctrination. You feel like, oh, you know, I'm just so weak. I really need to be toughened up by those peasants and do this hard labor. I see. So you're basically you're imagining that the people who are doing running the struggle sessions were the tough ones yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, <don't... laughs> I know the indoctrination was uh, very powerful. And uh, so the, the violence and then the kind of uh, uh, struggle session that lasted about two years. Actually, by the time I went back to school, uh, it was kind of calmed down. Calmed down, yeah, but uh, Mao just did not know what to do with all these uh, uh, red guards. That's what he did to send them to the countryside. <laughs> so that's their uh, awards, uh, uh, rewards of uh, doing uh, all this damage for Mao. Right. And I mean, the other part, and I just I have to mention was was the sort of destruction of history, mm -hmm. actually, right, which is a that's a central feature. That's the central feature of the Cultural Revolution. And so Mao told uh, the Red Guards and everybody, we should get rid of uh, the four odes, the old uh, ideas, old thoughts, uh, an old uh, tradition, old custom and old habits. What are they? They are the uh, traditional culture and civilization. So um, for you to get rid of it is to find um, historic uh, places such as temples and uh, uh, anything, basically anything old. So all the uh, Buddhist uh, uh, statues were torn down, temples destroyed or burned. and. Uh, what, what I witness is red guards going door to door to read homes. And so they would just go to homes and uh, uh, took out anything that's old. Um, old vases, antique furniture, anything. They would just go uh, take them out and uh, just burn them or smash them. And uh, I remember, and this whole street was just a mess of uh, things destroyed and the people howling and the crying, those homeowners. And because that's what uh, uh, the Red Guards uh, wanted to do. And, uh, and everyone was asked to go over your home and just find out those old uh, items to hand it over to the authorities. And I remember my, my mother was looking really hard to find something that we can consider bourgeois or consider old. So she managed to find a bottle of uh, old perfume mm. to hand it over. And uh, uh, cancel culture just uh, um, also, they demand that you can't wear a certain hairstyle. You can't wear anything that is kind of uh, um, fashionable. 
all this is condemned. And I witness red guards cutting uh, a young girl's hair off because th that girl had a hairstyle that was not approved. So, I mean, it's insane. It's absolutely madness. will ask the companies, I'll say, based on this rule that you've published, would this particular statement violate your rules? And the answer I always get 100% of the time is, we can't comment on hypotheticals. Post it, and if we ban you, it wasn't allowed. Today I sit down with Dr. Khalid Litaru, a media fellow at the Real Clear Foundation and senior fellow at the George Washington University Center for Cyber and Homeland Security. Instead of trying to repeal Section 230, he argues for an amendment that would compel social media companies to make available extensive dataset collections on what they're censoring, why they're doing so, and how their algorithms decide what content is boosted or demoted. To what degree are these silent hands shaping our democratic debate? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanyu Kellick. Call of Litaro, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Kalev, you put together a really fascinating uh, report that I've just been reading, basically trying to deal with this issue of, you know, big tech moderation, big tech censorship. Um, and frankly, there, there aren't a lot of people trying to look at this, uh, you know, kind of how to deal with these questions in a deeper, more thoughtful way. So it, it was really a, a pleasure to have this come across my desk, frankly. Transparency is a central central piece of, of your argument. You want to kind of, uh, I guess, legislate transparency uh, uh, on the social onto the social media companies. Tell us what you want to do. Yeah, so, you know, if we think about it, there's sort of widespread agreement. You look in, like, say, the aftermath of, of last week's uh, Facebook whistleblower, um, you know, one of the major themes that comes out of that is how little we know about these companies. That, you know, what we what we know, basically, about how social media censorship work tends to come from these big leaks of information. Um, and if you kind of step back, there's sort of widespread agreement that it's not tractable the way things are now. Like, we need, something needs to change. The question is what? And I think with social media, one of the challenges is, you know, every day we hear about things getting taken down. Um, but, you know, take a simple example. Earlier this year, Twitter started deleting any tweet that mentioned the word Memphis in it. Uh, and, you know, so all of a sudden all these tweets are coming down, being told they violated Twitter's uh, terms of service. And then, of course, the company obviously says, oops, sorry, it was an AI algorithm, you know, run amok. We're sorry. Uh, well, how exactly did that AI algorithm, you know, come to see Memphis as being a bad term? We have no idea. How did these things get added? Was that a human being who typed in a keyword? Was that some machine learning algorithm that looks for things going viral and makes its own decisions? These are all these challenges that, you know, is it human moderation that's the problem? Is it machine moderation that is the problem? We really don't know who's being affected by these policies, what's being affected, um, you know, what's being removed, and, and specifically how that, especially as more and more of a democracy is playing out through social platforms. I mean, it's where our government officials, you think about social media today, it's where our government officials, you know, they talk to us. Yes, they have their own websites. Yes, they have other ways of getting things out there. But social media is how they talk to their constituents. To what degree is social media um, ensuring that certain content, for example, doesn't go viral? Maybe one congressperson puts out a new proposal and maybe social media platforms uh, don't allow that to go viral. Um, another person puts out something and they push that out there to make that really go viral. To what degree are these silent hands sort of shaping our democratic debates? These are all these things that we really, really need answers to. No, and I mean, some really great questions that, that you're raising here. I mean, there's a kind of illiberal ideology that has sort of, you know, entered our common space, and especially especially in Silicon Valley amidst uh, uh, social media companies, this critical social justice ideology, which demands that basically only its perspective is the valid one. Anything that isn't its perspective is hurtful and harmful. So this is, you know, I imagine a number of viewers are thinking to themselves, well, I know what the problem is. This is the problem, what I, what I just described, for example, right? But this, you're saying that's actually, there's, there's some deeper questions to be asked here. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I love history. And, and, you know, anytime that I'm trying to understand, you know, a, a question, I like to look back at how do we get where we are today? 
You know, it, you know, we think about social media content moderation today. We, we think of this, you know, we think of content moderation, you think of the internet, you think of these big social platforms. Uh, but, you know, these are, if you, if you step back, these are the same questions of freedom of speech that our, question, our nation has wrestled with since it's fine. For more than two centuries, what is acceptable speech? Should you be allowed to criticize your government? Um, if, you, if you are allowed to, does that change during wartime? Should you not be allowed to criticize your government? For over two centuries, we've tried to wrestle with this question of what is harmful to talk about? What is allowable and what is harmful? And if you look back to our history, our country has tried it every possible way. You know, we've tried it where the federal government tries to, you know, come up with rules about what's allowed and not allowed. We try it with the states, with the cities, with private companies, with this, with that. We've tried it every possible scenario. And none of those has worked to the point that we said, wow, this is great. We have a solution that works. And, you know, I think it was Justice Harlan that, that um, you know, famously said the question of what is how to define acceptable and not acceptable speech is, quote, an intractable problem. As a society, we've thrown up our hands. We've said, you know what, it's, it's impossible to figure out what's allowable, what's not allowable. In a country that's really diverse with a large, you know, with wildly different lived experiences and beliefs and so on and so forth, it's impossible for us all to come together and say, yes, these are the following things that are allowed. These are the following things that are not allowed. And anytime you have that situation where there's this rich diversity of viewpoint, um, you're never going to come to that consensus. So what we've said is, look, we can't figure this out. Let these private companies in Silicon Valley sort it out for us. And, you know, that's really at the end of the day what the challenge, what the problem is, is these companies, you know, they're operating. If you kind of flip the coin and look at it from the company standpoint, uh, how do they decide what's allowable or not allowable? The courts haven't been, you know, other than a few exceptions, the courts in the U.S. haven't really deemed much, uh, you know, disallowable. Um, and so there's not really much guideline. They're sort of making it up as they go. And that's the real problem is we didn't stop and say, hey, you know, social media companies, you can you can remove what you deem to be harmful. But, um, you know, that's the part that's missing. We could have said, but you have to put these out uh, to a vote of the public. Um, you know, we didn't say that. We, we could have said, well, Congress has to review these at regular intervals and we have to publish these rules in Congress way. We didn't do that. We just said, look, these private companies can do what they want. And most interestingly, um, if you look back in the history of censorship in the United States, um, there was a period where states had a lot of, there was a lot of sort of local control of censorship. Um, Section 230 specifically says the states have no ability to, uh, you know, to alter these rules to local, um, you know, local needs. So I think that's, that's that really the, the, the root of all of this is the fact that we gave up as a society and told these private companies to figure it out in themselves. And we're not happy with the result, um, but that's because at the end of the day, you're never going to have you know, a set of private companies that are going to be able to come up with rules for all of us. We need this transparency to really be able to understand like what are these rules? And I, I come back to, if we look back a couple years ago, The Guardian had a leak of internal content moderation guidelines. This is called the, the original Facebook files, they called it. And what was fascinating about that is, you know, for a long time, people said, look, the social media companies are censoring, but, you know, they have to. They have to censor to help society, get rid of all that horrible stuff. Um, but then when that came out, we saw that, you know, oh, well, look, anti-Semitism, that's allowed. Um, you know, violence against women, that's allowed. All these different categories were explicitly with labels saying allowed under certain circumstances. And that provoked this huge discussion. But, well, wait a second. Why should these things be allowed? So society all of a sudden was able to realize that, you know what, all is not well here, that maybe we do need to have a little bit more uh, visibility. So I think that's the thing is once you, once you understand what's happening, then we can have these societies discussions about, um, you know, do we agree with these or not? Well, and so we definitely need to talk about Section 230. It's obviously kind of, you know, pretty central to these questions. Um, the thing is that I think we, it didn't occur to most, most people that this was even an issue, basically until around 2015, 2016, when there was also, you know, social media uh, companies started getting a lot of pressure to censor, including from Congress and so forth. And then, you know, people started noticing, oh, you know, my feed is getting throttled. It seems like, I don't know for sure, but it looks like, oh, um, there's, uh, looks like, you know, this, this person got taken down. This is the canary in the coal mine now. We can expect more people to be. And it just, it sort of seemed to accelerate dramatically from that time, basically from, from the time of the Trump candidacy and the beginnings of the Trump presidency. Yeah, you know, it, it's fascinating. I mean, if you, if you walk back, 
Um, and look at this. Really, these questions, since the dawn of the internet, you know, I mean, the internet is an aphorist term, you know, it refers to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of history. But if we kind of look at the early period, like the Usenet era, for those that are old enough to remember the, the Usenet, um, you know, these same questions materialized there. You know, there was this old term called the flame war, you know, attacking people online, doxing, publishing people's information. And what's interesting is you look at these early days, there was a lot of public discussion about what should be allowable. Um, you know, should you, if you're angry at someone, should you be allowed to publish their personal information on the web and tell people, you know, publish their phone number, tell people, call them, go to their house. Um, you know, what today we would call doxing, uh, you know, that was around, you know, way back when. Uh, you know, we talk about like moderation, even in the earliest days, you know, in Usenet, um, you know, you had this issue. Take any issue, like alt.politics.middleeast. That was a really particularly contentious board. So you had kind of this, this, you know, essentially what today we might think of as kind of as like a mailing list. Um, but, you know, again, like that got to be to a point where they, there was a moderated version of it. Um, and, you know, for any given topic, you'd have kind of this, this um, you know, this sort of, um, you know, this Usenet group. Then you'd have other versions of it. You'd have moderated groups. Some cases you even had nice, quote unquote, nice versions where the rules were no profanity, no attacks, no nothing. Um, and that's also, if you kind of look at that early era, that's how they kind of dealt with a lot of this issue of we all have different ideas about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So in the Usenet era, if you, you know, if you didn't like the rules in one group, you found, you create another group. You could create as many of these, you know, sort of groups as you wanted. The problem today with Twitter and Facebook and these social platforms is they're single universes. You know, take Twitter. If you want to have, say, a private debate in the corner about something, the problem is that debate, everyone in the world sees it. Everyone in the world's weighing in on it. So something that happens in one corner of the world, the entire world has to weigh in on it now. Um, in Usenet, you could kind of, you know, you could create these different communities that each had their own rules. And that's partially where, you know, today it's not just the U.S., it's the fact that, you know, there's a conversation here. Someone on the other side of the world can participate in that conversation. And they may have a very, very different perspective on, you know, what is, um, you know, their, you know, what they see as acceptable and not acceptable. And so it's kind of this fact that social media, it sort of, it shoves us all in this, this, this single box. It, essentially, it shoves everyone in a giant soccer stadium, gives them all a microphone. It'd be, it'd be like if you took the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention, and you had them in the same ballroom, you know, together with each other. In real life, we say, hey, that's a really bad idea. Nobody would think of doing that. On Twitter, that's exactly what is happening. All this political raging debate. Um, and, you know, again, don't forget those algorithms that sit behind the scenes that quietly prioritize what we see. And, you know, that's a really important thing that, you know, those algorithms, they look at what fires us up. You know, you notice on social media, you don't normally see, you know, just endless screens of puppies and, you know, unicorns and happiness. What you see, because again, like if you if you scroll through and you see, hey, a little puppy there, you might quickly watch that video, but that's it. You're not going to engage with it. If you see something, it's like, oh, that fires me up. You're going to go, you know, you're going to start coming. You're going to forward that to people. You're going to start commenting on it. It's really going to fire you up. And that's what in turn engages people. And so inadvertently, if you just take a simple algorithm and say, give people what they seem to react to, you're going to immediately shovel people towards things that, you know, kind of fire us up underneath. And, and again, these are things where we don't have visibility. How are those algorithms working? I personally, you know, I prefer chronological, where you get everything in chronological order, because that way, at least, you know, you're seeing it as it's being produced. It's not some algorithm, you know, trying to figure out what makes you tick and give you the stuff that's going to, you know, fire you up. Um, and this is, becomes important, too, is, as, you know, more and more of our offline stuff gets organized on social media. You know, think about today. If you're going to, you know, organize a protest on the street, you don't send flyers out or send emails out or even pick up the phone usually. You post it on social media. So, you know, which of those are, you know, which of those are going viral? Which of those are not going viral? Is that because, you know, people aren't interested in your topic? Or is that because some algorithm is intervening? And so last year you saw um, with, the co with the reopening uh, protests in the early days of COVID— you know, Facebook put out this official policy that said any physical protest that's in violation of uh, local ordinances around COVID, we will not allow that protest, um, you know, to be advertised on our platform. And we'll pull that down. Same thing if it doesn't explicitly require masks or there's anything else there. Um, and then you had the George Floyd protests and they quietly removed that restriction. Um, and so this becomes very interesting that, again, that wasn't a public thing. That wasn't something where they made an announcement and said, we believe that, you know, these protests are important. So we are withdrawing uh, this restriction. 
Um, and, you know, so that's the real challenge there, that these, these rules changes happen every day. Um, and we just, you know, we, we know, we don't know what the rules are. I mean, how can you have a society where, you know, a digital society where you don't even know what the rules are? And as a journalist, you know, I routinely will ask the companies, I'll say, um, well, you know, based on this rule that you've published, would this particular statement violate your rules? And the answer I always get 100% of the time is we can't comment on hypotheticals. Post it, and if we ban you, it wasn't allowed. That's not a, you can't have a digital world like that. No, I mean, and that's a, that's a hugely important point. I mean, uh, so, so many directions to take here. I mean, I was, you, you propose 10 different databases that you think should be kind of available for public scrutiny. I guess you're also suggesting that the rules governing the AIs and their decision-making should also be transparent. Um, but the question is, by what mechanism will can we guarantee that these you know giant corporations larger than anything we've ever seen in the history of the world with massive the power let's say will actually tell us what the the reality of those things the way I would see this is, you know, Section 230, we, we talk about this as being this immutable thing. It has been amended, um, most notably the Sexual Trafficking Act. It was amended. So it is very conceivable that you could amend 230 to say, in, you know, as a condition of receiving all of this, all of this power, all this immunity, in return, you have to provide certain data sets. And if that was codified into 230, then it has the force of law behind it. And so they would have to publish this stuff. Um, and one of the things I think that's really important is, it's really about also the putting the, the clear rules out there. If you read through the rules that say Twitter or Facebook or any of the companies have, you know, they tend to say things like, you know, if you put something harmful, you'll be banned. What is harmful? How do you define that? And the answer is always, again, uh, you know, post it and you'll find out. Um, and, you know, I think this is the real problem. And, it, and I should add that this goes beyond social media. You know, think about Uber, Airbnb, Lyft, every platform you use today typically has now a terms of service that talk about things. So you think, uh, I think it was Laura Loomer, you had the activist who was removed from um, you know, Uber and Lyft, because, not because of something that was done within their service, but because uh, of, a, I think it was a tweet, um, you know, separately. So, you know, think about this sort of this, it's almost like the, the Chinese, um, what do you call it, the social credit system. You know, this idea that, you know, a comment you make over here in the quarter can impact your life over here. And again, without these clear guidelines. So Airbnb, you know, with the, the inauguration, I think the, they blocked Block basically um, uh, reservations here in DC. Um, you know they they have uh, again they publish all these rules saying look we're going to remove um, hateful organizations. Well, how do you define that? Um, you know you could say well the Ku Klux Klan. You know I think there'd be unanimous agreement that probably shouldn't should not be an allowed group on there. Um, but where do you draw that line? And and an example of this so Microsoft anyone who uses Microsoft you know Office um, for their Office 360 product one of the terms of service in there says. Uh, that if you use their product to produce hate speech, you can lose your per you can be permanently banned from Microsoft's products. And so I wrote to them and I said, well, how do you define hate speech? What is your definition of it? How, have you ever banned anyone for this? Have you ever actually enforced this policy? And again, the answer was silence. And that I think is a really important notion that we have these rules, but the companies, they don't like there's not this. Um, the, the rules like this, not, it's not like the code of law. Code of law doesn't say if you do something bad, you'll be arrested. It actually lays out bullet by bullet by bullet by bullet. Um, this is what we kind of lack in the digital world is, you know, you think about like the Hunter Biden situation where the New York Post article about his laptop despair. I think that's a classic example where the New, uh, you know, New York Post, an actual real, like a news outlet, put something out there. Um, and you have both Facebook and Twitter weighing in saying, you know, it's harmful information. We're not going to publish it. You know, Twitter started off by saying, um, I think it was, you know, it was harmful misinformation. Then it was, um, you know, hacked materials. Then it was, you know, well, there's personal information. The answer, you know, the, the story as to why they were banning it changed hour by hour until finally they said, you know what, we never should have banned this. It was bad. You know, we, we, we made a mistake. By that point, you know, it was over. The story had faded away. And, you know, the fact that, I mean, just think of that for a moment. The fact that a mainstream news outlet had, a, had an article basically banned from being shared on social media, and the reason for that changed, uh, I think, four total times 
that, you know, that tells it all you need to know about the state of things right now, that there's not, you know, that would be like the police arresting you and saying, well, we're charging you with this. Oh, sorry, sorry. Actually, no, we're charging you with this. Nope. Sorry. This, 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 and this. So that's the challenge. Like it needs to be an answer. And, you know, with AI in particular, one of the interesting things as companies move more towards AI, um, we think of them as black boxes, but there's actually a field called explainable AI, which is a whole area of research where basically you essentially build these AI algorithms that you can actually ask it. When it produces an answer, it actually tells you why it made that decision. So companies, you know, with humans, with human content moderators, companies say, well, we can't provide you an explanation. You know, there's two answers they usually give. One is we can't provide an explanation because that would give bad actors an idea of how to get around our rules. But again, I mean, that's what, that's what lawyers do every day. I mean, that's, why you, that's what lawyers are for. Um, and we accept that as the cost of a transparent legal system. But the other answer to that really um, is they say, well, it's too expensive. If a moderator had to sit there and spend, you know, 10 minutes writing up an explanation, it wouldn't be tractable for us to do this. With AI, building an AI model that can give you, you know, an explanation of why I did it, that's, that doesn't cost anything more than an AI that doesn't do that. So that eliminates that argument of what costs too much. Um, and the tools, again, we're, that's a new area of research. But it's an area where there's all this work being done there. Um, and so, you know, as that field matures, there's no, um, you know, argument then that they can't provide that explanation to you. And it helps them, you know. And I always say that, look, for the tech companies, this helps them too. Because if you're Twitter and everyone starts getting an explanation, you know, today they just see, hey, my tweet about Memphis got deleted. I don't know. Was it because I mentioned Memphis? Was it because I mentioned something else? Uh, but, you know, if the actual explanation said, you are, be, you know, you are being suspended because your tweet, your tweet mentioned the word Memphis and Memphis is, uh, has been determined to be a harmful word that harms people. Um, well, now we have an explanation, but most importantly for them, they can see, hey, there's a problem here. This shouldn't be the case. But then also it, it kind of, it, it doesn't, I see it almost traps the companies because in the case of like the New York Post, they can't keep changing their explanation. They're on record as saying, this is why we banned it. No, oh, very, very interesting. So, you know, basically you're saying that, that you want to put into law for example, perhaps as an amendment to Section 230 or, or somewhere else, uh, the transparency around these 10 databases as a starting point, right? And so tell me a little bit about, you know, pick, pick, pick a few that you think are the most important and tell me about them and why that would make a significant difference. So one of them is the, a data set about what their algorithms are, you know, making go viral. So rewind the clock. The, the most famous example of all of this was, you know, the Ferguson protests. Um, so on Twitter, all you saw were the Ferguson protests. On Facebook, all you saw were happy, smiley people dumping buckets of wa ice water over their heads as part of the ALS ice bucket challenge. Um, two polar different universes. That wasn't because the people on Facebook didn't care, vice versa. It was because of how their systems were designed. Facebook's algorithms decided, um, you know, either on their own or through human intervention, um, to prioritize happy, smiley, you know, friendly things at that point. Um, and so that's kind of the case. That kind of that's the example that's always given of the power of these algorithms. And you think about today, you know, let's say some lawmaker puts forward a policy proposal and it just, it, it goes, it's a dud. Nobody cares about it. Nobody talks about it on social media. Nobody discusses it. They don't hear from any of their constituents. Um, that might, uh, you know, cause them to think, well, maybe this is not a useful policy proposal. But maybe that's because the algorithms decided that that's a bad policy proposal and make sure that no one actually saw that proposal out there. Um, so again, like having this visibility, what are these algorithms feeding us? So, you know, last week, the Facebook whistleblower saying that Facebook's algorithms, you know, they're, they're you know, either advert, either directly or inadvertently are designed to, you know, to push us towards angry rage, uh, you know, divisive content. Uh, you know, and Facebook, of course, responded said, absolutely not. That's completely false. The problem is that, you know, at this point, we don't, we don't have the data. We can't answer who's right. You know, who, who is correct there? If you actually had a list. So one of that would be a list. You know, what are, what is the type of content that they are prioritizing? What are their algorithms? putting forward. And on a, on a public platform like Twitter, that's very easy. You could say on Facebook, there's all kinds of privacy issues there. On Twitter, everything's public anyway. Uh, and so it was very easy to put that forward and just, you know, show that. Um, I think the, another interesting data set here is 
you, know, you think about when a celebrity gets their tweet deleted, um, you know, we read about it in the news media because they have that outlet. They can go public about it. An ordinary person doesn't really have an easy outlet to get attention. Um, so we don't really know, like, how often is if content pulled down every day? I mean, the only way we see this is, you know, quarterly reports where they might say, you know, we took down a billion pieces of content. But, you know, that's just a statistic. Like, who was behind that content? So even things like demographic, you know, we, we picture kind of the stereotype, the sort of this caricature of, you know, the, the person on, you know, social media putting out something bad and getting it removed. Um, but is that really true? Who are the people that are affected? Um, you know, like, uh, for example, hate speech rules. We see that, you know, we, we sort of picture, uh, you know, the, the KKK member there. Um, but is it actually affecting other people? And we saw this actually played out in a, in a, a, very, um, a very interesting case. Um, so Facebook has the oversight board, their quote unquote Supreme Court of Facebook. Um, and they actually, it was very interesting. There's a case where they ruled, um, it was actually in, in Miramar, um, where there was a case where um, a, someone um, made some comments about Muslims and, um, you know, said, I forget the specific quote, um, but something, I think the quote was, there's something psychologically wrong with Muslims, was the quote. Um, and so Facebook took that down and said, well, in there, there was some other stuff in there. Facebook took it down and said, you know, this is, um, you know, this is an attack on a specific ethnicity. The oversight board ordered them to put it back and said that, yes, um, it is an attack on, on them. Yes, this is a country where there's, you know, actually genocide, um, you know, against, these, this, against this particular group. But um, I think their argument was um, that it was, an, it was a sort of academic scholarly discussion about this. Um, and so this becomes very interesting where you can say, well, even something that, you know, you and I might say, well, you know, somebody saying something like that, you know, under Facebook's rules, that would seem to be a pretty clear, you know, violation of their rules, but yet their own oversight board says, uh-uh, that's actually not a violation. And you look through their cases, it really reminds you that, you know, there, there's such a, you know, that even things that seem really clear cut, um, suddenly, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, like, it's a really complicated, a really complicated world. So for me, where I think something is, that's missing here is a public database of what's coming down. So look at Twitter. On Twitter, there is a there is a, a third party called PolitiWoops, where they were they basically archive tweets from politicians that those politicians eventually delete. Um, so that's a well known site. It's really useful to kind of see like what are people saying, and they had second thoughts on. The problem is PolitiWoops only archives that this tweet was published and then removed. You know, maybe it was a typo. Maybe they misspelled someone's name. They reposted immediately with the correct one. It doesn't archive why that tweet was removed. And this is important because when Twitter um, says that something's a violation of their rules, they don't typically remove the content themselves. They suspend your account and say, you're suspended until you remove the content. So it's hard to tell from the outside. You just see a tweet disappeared. You have no idea why. And because everything's public on Twitter, um, it would be very easy for, you know, for Twitter, for example, every tweet that gets removed to provide you know, that, that explanation. Why was this removed? And you know, the counter argument to that, of course, would be, well, if you produce this archive full of all this you know, material, isn't that going to be basically an archive of horrible stuff? Well, there's another website called Lumen. Um, and what it is, is it basically archives copyright takedown requests. So if someone posts, you know, uh, an illegal copy of the newest, you know, Top Gun movie and they publish it on, you know, some website and, you know, that website deletes it and says it's a copyright infringement, um, that goes on this, this website called Lumen. Now, that doesn't give the original URL. It doesn't give the details. It just says, hey, you know, there was a copy of this. It was removed because of the following reasons. Researchers and journalists can get additional access that gives them a little bit more information on that. And because of that. So in other words, you're able to sort of archive this information without, you know, giving, basically without sort of creating an archive of links that people can follow. And you think about Twitter, what about the same model for Twitter? What if any tweet that Twitter deletes has to go in this permanent archive? Um, and let's say that you are, you are someone on Twitter, your tweet gets deleted. Now, imagine if Twitter is required to ask you, hey, here's the following demographics that we have, that either you've told us about, maybe you have it in your bio, or that we've inferred about you through our algorithms, we've determined something about you. Now, you might say, hey, you know, this is uh, sensitive information, like maybe it says, you know, hey, you're LGBTQ, or you're this, or you're that, and you say, you know, I don't really want that public, um, you might choose not to. Or you might say, hey, you know what? I want that in there. So now you can start saying, hey, guess what? The hate speech rules are, you know, 90% of the, of the tweets being did are actually LGBTQ people. Um, you know, hey, that's a bad situation here. That, that means we need to tweak these algorithms. So like having that type of demographic data attached to these, um, you know, allows us to, to really understand or, or take fact checks. Um, if you take, you know, think about like Facebook today, they remove content based on fact checks. Um, what are the top fact checks that are result in the most takedowns? If I take all the climate change coverage in a given day that's deleted, um, you know, 
Is there one fact check that kind of resulted in all that? Are there multiple fact checks? Um, this kind of tells us like, who are the, the sort of the sources of truth that are defining what's out there today? Um, and that's useful to fact checkers as well, because if they say, hey, you know, for every climate change piece that gets taken out, there's one fact check basically that's resulting in all this. That might be something to look back at. Same thing in the early days of COVID, you know, Facebook banned any post um, by, you know, by an individual that said, hey, I had an adverse reaction to the vaccine. Um, those were largely banned on their platform. Um, and then, of course, you had the blood clot, um, you know, and once that was documented, then they had to go back um, and alter those rules um, to specifically exempt blood clots. Um, now, again, you know, that was a case where I asked, well, you know, what were, you know, how many people were reporting blood clots before that point? Had that not necessarily, had that not been banned, could that have been an early warning indicator that could have helped doctors early on? Um, you know, same thing with masks. In the early days of the pandemic, remember, it was the official guidance not to wear a mask. Um, and so I've asked, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, I've said, you know, you, your rules say any post that disagrees with public health authorities um, is removed. What would you have done in the early days of the pandemic when you know the, most of the world was saying wear a mask, the public health authorities here were saying don't wear a mask? Uh, what would you do there? Um, and the answer I think was Facebook that actually said, well, um, you know, uh, a it's a hypothetical, but b what I thought was very interesting, they said this is one of the reasons that we say that governments should w really step in here. We shouldn't be the ones making the decisions about what should be posted or not posted. The government. This is very interesting. This is Facebook saying this that you know governments really need to step in and tell us what. To remove because if people are upset about this, then you know, really, in the absence of anything, we're the ones having to make these decisions. And I thought, you know, that's a really, you know, a really truthful statement, essentially, that, um, you know, uh, so much of this again comes back to that fact that they're basically kind of left to their own devices there. Well, you know, what you're what you're describing right now, it kind of makes me smile a little bit because initially we were talking about how, uh, you know, we as a society left it to these companies to do it. Right. So, you know, in a sense, you know, it's so it's it's a complicated question. Well, we'll just absolve ourselves of the responsibility, put the responsibility of these on these companies. Now, these companies are saying, no, well, actually, we don't want the responsibility. Here, government, you have the responsibility. No one wants the responsibility. And that's the thing. I mean, look at fact checkers. Um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, etc. You look early on, you know, they're trying to figure out, like, how do we deal with, you know, libel and all these other things on here? And, you know, how do we deal with really bad things? Like, let's say someone says, hey, drink a gallon of bleach to cure COVID. Well, yeah, I don't care. You'll be dead. How do you get rid of, like, stuff like that? Um, and again, it's this fuzzy line that you draw there. But the way they did it is they said, look, if we start doing this. So, you know, I think this is something that's very that's very interesting to think about. Very, you know, internally, the companies realize that, you know, if we start getting into deciding truth and, fa and falsehoods, almost immediately, we're going to go up against politicians and we're going to be the ones It's going to be a Facebook employee saying, you know, the president of the United States has, you know, said something false. They don't want to be in that scenario where, you know, they're the ones labeling politicians true and false. So you partner with these third party fact checkers. So that way you can wave your hands. You know, you can you can wash your hands of it and say, we're not the ones doing this. Uh, you know, we are leaving to these independent journalists, third parties to do it. Um, but what's interesting is you've seen, you know, there has been uh, like some of the Wall Street Journal reporting reported on the fact that and I think Fast Company also did a piece on this, that, you know, the fact checkers have overruled their judgments in cases um, at the request of Facebook. You know, because people always ask me, like, what would you do to solve this problem? Would you get rid of 230? Would you, you know, do antitrust? Would you do all these things? And my answer is, well, you know, you can't really decide what solution is going to be until you know which, what are the actual problems? You know, if we get rid of 230, you know, think about if we get rid of 230, that's a common one that's put out there. Without those protections, they're just going to delete everything. Um, I mean, look at what's happening in Australia right now. You know, so Australia, you had that ruling that, you know, mainstream media outlets can be held responsible for the comments, you know, on their, their social media pages. You're seeing the, the chilling impact that that has and that, you know, some media outlets are just pulling out of the country rather than deal with that. And so think about that. You know, if, if all of a sudden the companies were told, look, you're legally liable, um, you know, they're going to basically remove all sort of free speech there. Um, conversely, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, get rid of, you know, do antitrust, get rid of the monopolies. Um, and, you know, that's, I think, a really interesting case. If if we look back at Donald Trump, um, when he was removed from the platform, um, you know, think about Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, removed him. But don't forget competitors, Snapchat, et cetera, also removed him. But don't forget TikTok removed him. You know, a Chinese company, you know, the U.S. and China are not necessarily, you know, on the, you know, the best of friends at the, at the moment. TikTok, owned by the Chinese government, they also removed him. 
So this shows us that, you know, even foreign companies now, um, and there was no legal, it wasn't like TikTok was ordered by the, you know, by some government agency to do it. They, you know, they just did it on their own volition. So that's just something that's important to remember that, let's say you just break it up, you, you split up the, the tech companies to tiny little uh, pieces, that's absolutely no guarantee um, that you're not going to have this. And if you look back in our country, in the U.S., look at the history of motion pictures, look at the history of radio uh, broadcasts and then television broadcasts. Every single one of those, you had all these competing companies that all agreed to the same codes of acceptable speech, um, not because there was any government official ordering. It was completely on their own. Their, their own industries uh, came up with so fierce competitors that ordinarily were at each other's throats. They all agreed to say, here are the general rules that we're going to adopt. So again, it's important to note that just splitting up these countries, because that's, you know, this, this, one of the things I come back to is this is the space where everybody has sort of their one quick trick, you know, just do this one thing. It's really simple and we solve this issue. Um, the problem is there is there are no easy solutions here. And, and, you know, every one of these comes with these consequences. But again, like understanding, like prioritizing what are the biggest issues that confront us? And that's really where this transparency can count, help us guide um, what are the, the most important first steps to take. Well, you know, TikTok is a very interesting case that, you, you know, I can't, I can't help think about the fact, you know, of course, the, you know, Chinese Communist Party has, you know, supremacy over TikTok and its decision making as is, as is hopefully obvious to everyone watching. Um, in this case, you know, there's, there's a lot of precedent for the Chinese regime to basically call anything that might sort of, um, well, I guess shine a light on its activities to be classified as a state secret. And, and that's it. That's, that's, and, and that would be the end of it. So you wouldn't get insight into these 10 databases or more uh, with a, a company like TikTok. Would they be allowed to uh, operate here in the U.S.? You know, that, that's a fascinating question. And, you know, one of the challenges as well is, you know, today, so, you know, most of what we think of as sort of the internet and social media has been mostly U.S.-based. Um, you know, TikTok is, you know, again, like that's sort of this this vanguard of, you know, sites that are used by ordinary people here in the U.S. You know, again, there's always been, you know, uh, obscure sites, but like this is a major platform, you know, here in the U.S. and it's owned by a foreign government, which also means that, you know, you, you have all these key questions of who decides. I mean, think of, you know, some of these TikTok challenges that are happening, like trash your school bathroom or, you know, hit a teacher or any of these other kind of viral moments that are happening right now. Um, you know, what, since they're not a U.S. company, um, you know, who's responsible for that? And, and, you know, more broadly, when these memes come out, like, should someone be legally liable? I mean, for, you know, Section 230 deals with more with, like, censorship liability. But, you know, think about some meme that goes viral on one of these platforms and the platform doesn't, you know, squash it. And let's say, you know, hit a teacher um, and somebody does that. Should the platform be liable for it? Um, what happens if they're not a U.S. platform? Um, you know, like, especially as other countries start, um, you know, start having more. I mean, imagine the next Facebook, Twitter might be from another country who has its own values that are not necessarily aligned with America's values. Today, if, if you want to really control a country, um, you know, start up a social media platform that is used by everyone in that country and just tweak those algorithms to guide them towards, you know, what you think is going to be most divisive or least divisive. And, you know, and then conversely, you're getting all this insight, what everybody feels about, what they're thinking about, what's important to them, what lawmakers are resonating or not resonating. I mean, think about all this information that's out there today, um, you know, and, you know, you think about this of, you know, even just the, you know, take, a, take a, I mean, even existing platforms. I mean, last week with the Facebook whistleblower, it, you know, the idea of the national security concerns of external companies, um, you know, that have visibility, I mean, even things like Twitter and Facebook, the ability of a foreign company or a foreign country to go into run ad campaigns to you know get at, to do all these things like this is a really important measure and don't forget the Facebook oversight board which has you know sort of this guidance over Facebook don't forget that you know there are there's at least one former elected um, head of state um, you know former now who's on that board who in theory could have the final vote on like when Donald Trump when they ruled that Donald Trump's account should not yet be restored. Um, you know, like there are, you know, the people that 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 board, I think it's a 20 person board now, um, you know, those are not all Americans. Um, some of those are former officials of other countries that in theory could actually decide, does the president, does the former president of the United States get to go back on social media? Like these are really fascinating questions in this globalized world of like who's making these decisions? Um, you know, look at the history of Silicon Valley in China. 
um, you know, most of Silicon Valley's interactions with China has been, um, you know, to bend their products to their to their needs. I mean, even Apple, as, as if I remember correctly, even they are localizing their user data for their customers there to local data centers, even as here, you know, they promote encryption and there's no way for the government to do anything. Um, and I think this is a really important thing that tech companies, again, it all comes down to the money. Um, you know, if a country's got a huge population, they're willing to, you know, do whatever they need to do to bend those rules to take a softer stance on freedom of speech. You know, there's also, you know, even the physical security side of things. So Facebook, for example, in their advertising, I don't know if they still do, but historically, one of their advertising parameters um, was they would estimate whether someone was gay. So, for example, you might, you know, if you're gay, you're like, you maybe go to great lengths to never uh, to never make that public. You know, you never matter. But based on their algorithms, they may say it. So that's actually an advertiser. And actually, as an advertiser, you can target and say, I want someone uh, who your algorithms believe is gay. Now, in the U.S., that's one thing, but there are countries in the world where that carries the death penalty. And so I asked them and I said, um, you know, why do you still make this selector available in those countries where it carries the death penalty? And the answer was, well, that way rights groups can target those people. Yes, governments can, but rights group can as well. Um, but I, you know, I said, well, doesn't the, the fact that people could actually die from this, um, doesn't that kind of trump that? And the answer was no. Uh, but most importantly, I said, um, have you ever had, because again, like these are data sets Facebook calls. I said, have you ever had a country um, ask you for, a, uh, give you a selector like gay or so on and say, give me a list of every user in my country, physically on my, within my borders, that, ha that your algorithms have decided uh, fall into one of these categories and I want their contact information. Is specifically in a country where that carries the death penalty. And I said, you know, would you deny that that's ever happened? And they did not deny it. Um, but the question is, you know, again, like, how, to what degree do governments use that information? Like, these are all these other pieces to this puzzle um, that, you know, again, like, having this transparency, seeing, like, what is the inner workings? Like, you know, the fact that I, as a journalist, you know, I deserve no answer from the social media companies about this. Politicians deserve, you know, elected officials of the U.S. government. Don't get answered. I mean, look at the response, uh, you know, when they asked about Instagram, you know, is Instagram harmful to teenagers, you know, at those earlier hearings and the company, you know, cited all this research about how wonderful Instagram is and all this stuff. Meanwhile, internally, they had all this research here. But, you know, again, they weren't under there's no legal obligation for them to share that. And I think that's something that's really important there. Our team reached out to Facebook, but did not immediately receive a response. This is, I guess, the big question, right? I, I, I guess I'll reiterate it again, right? This is the idea that we have, you know, giant companies with levels of power that were, you know, almost unimaginable that kind of control the public square or a significant part of the public square. Um, they're engaged in censorship. The solution is to codify, that you're proposing, is to codify into lot some transparency on them that they've never had to provide before as a starting point. And I guess, and the question is, what kind of penalties would, would be required to get these companies to actually feel like there was an actual threat to them. I mean, I, I, I don't know, like, you know, these, if, if a billion dollars to a company is really not such a big deal to keep operations going smoothly, right? Uh, is, is it criminal liability? Like, what are you talking about here? You know, it, it, it's fascinating. So we look in Europe, they have GDPR. Um, you know, and in the past, I've written a lot about about this. So GDPR, um, you know, it has all kinds of protections and penalties, fees, fines, et cetera, on there. Um, but the bottom line is it has so many loopholes uh, that um, really it doesn't have a lot of teeth. Um, you know, there's a famous case where it even said um, you have to report a breach within X number of days. Uh, you know, I think it was Facebook, you know, stretched this out to more than a year. And the result was to say, well, their answer was, well, that that clock starts ticking when we decide it starts ticking. And so I think this is this is one of those challenges that even GDPR has so many loopholes in it. It has exemptions for research, it has exemptions for this, for that. It's what your regulator decides. So, you know, I think this that that is one of the challenges is, you know, how do you make sure it's got teeth? I mean, even fines of millions of dollars per day is, again, it's pocket change. Um, and I think that's where, you know, again, if you put it in 230, you could say, for example, that platforms that don't abide by this lose some of their protections of 230. Um, that's a way of, you know, A, it has teeth now uh, because, you know, suddenly now, now again, again, the courts would all decide all that stuff. But I think, you know, it's a first step because right now, when you go to platforms, their answer is, no, you're not going to get an answer from us because we have no obligation to give you an answer. 
Um, you know, if you put in the law, yes, I mean, again, these companies have incredible teams of lawyers that will find all sorts of ways around it. And, you know, they, they, they will ensure that. But at least having that starts providing that it starts providing something. Um, you know, right now we have zero. So, you know, adding anything to that would allow us to at least start having some insight into what these companies do. And again, you know, it's that it's that there's always this paradox here. Let's say that you say they, you know, I, I don't have this as one of my prescriptions, but let's say you say any internal research that you do, you have to publish to Congress, um, which in turn would have forced Facebook to hand over its Instagram report. The problem is then the, the companies just won't do that type of research anymore. You know, they'll they'll basically say, is there any possible chance this could have negative findings? If not, if so, we won't do it. Um, so, you know, that is something that has to be cautious about. But the, you know, basic things like takedown effects. I mean, even the thing of a lot of times companies take down stuff and they say this is a violation of US law. It's actually illegal content. Um, to what, you know, how often are those things reported to the police? You know, if you're taking something down, you say this is a clear, unambiguous violation of the law. Why don't you refer that to the police then? Uh, you know, if you do, and the court and it goes to the court system, how did they rule? Um, to what degree is kind of your opinion of U.S. law match reality? Um, and I think these are these these fascinating things. And so I think if you put it in two thirds again, like the specific penalties, what's the dollar amount of their criminal liabilities? Those are all the things. I mean, again, that's what Congress specializes in. Um, but I think taking that first step of you know, because right now it's not even something that companies have to think about. It's not something they even like. They don't even have to do any concessions. So right now they can just say no. Period. Once you start pushing for this to be in legislation, yes, you know the lobbyists and the loyals will ensure it gets watered down, but there'll be that conversation. They'll have to make some concessions to it, and that will, will at least come away with something from this. We see these as kind of these these modern issues that you know this is something unique of the social media era. But really, you know, again, it it's I think the root of all the problems that we're having. Every one of these challenges comes back to the fact that. For more than two centuries, we've tried to come together as society and say, this is what's allowable, this is what's not allowable. We've never come up with that solution. So we've handed it to these private companies uh, to sort of figure out on their own. And the problem is that when we did that handoff, when we wrote Section 230 and we did that handoff, um, we tended off as a black box. We said, you do it and we don't want to know anything about it. Um, and that was a conscious decision to not have that transparency piece to say it's better to let those private companies do it and society not to know about it. I think we just add that in. And there's, again, that precedent for modifying 230. It can be modified. It has been um, to add in that extra piece to say in return for all those privileges, like there needs to be some transparency. So as a society, we can at least debate these issues. Again, you know, we may decide that. We don't have a solution, so we've got to keep doing what we're doing, but at least it allows us to have this debate and maybe to, you know, at least to create some guardrails for how it all happens. Well, Call of Litaro, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great to be here.